Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Another busy show ahead of us So let's straight away say hello to all of our contributors Richard Collins is at his home In North County Dublin in Malahide How are you Richard? Very well Derek Ainani Launa is next She's not at her home in Terenure today Oh no she's in I think County Kilkenny In Gregnamana The hamlet of the monks It translates as Aina, I was driving through Kilkenny the other day And they were all about you On the radio station there What are you doing there? I'm down at Gregnamana, which is on the barrow between Carlow and Kilkenny, actually, just on the border. And I'm here because Sunday is Water Heritage Day and I've been leading a walk along the River Barrow to look at the various wonderful things that we see along the barrow and appreciate how wonderful it is. Now, mind you, they're having a huge hoolie down here in Gregnamana. There's a book fair, there's loads of people walking around, there's all sorts of carry-on going on. I don't think I'll come back at all. <laughs> Why are you celebrating water, Aina? And today in particular... Well, it's, I mean, it's been National Heritage Week all week from for the whole week and we've been celebrating all the different aspects of our heritage. But Sunday, they particularly pick it to be Water Heritage Day. So the particular events on the Sunday are all being arranged by, you know, the local authorities and everybody else to have events happening to do with the water, that particular aspect of the environment. And it's always the last Sunday in Heritage Week and Craig Namana usually invite me down to come and walk along their Barrow River. The Barrow's a wonderful river, the second biggest river in Ireland. Lovely clean water. I'm going to go for a swim in it now when I'm finished speaking to you. Why wouldn't you? Anyways, we leave Aina there slipping into her polka dot bikini. We can dip our toes now into the triumph of Team Ireland at the RDS in Dublin where Niall Hatch is standing by. Niall is there all week for Birdwatch Ireland. They have a stand there trying to encourage new members at the Dublin Horse Show and it was great news for Ireland on Friday when they won the Aga Khan Cup again. I used to go in when I was a kid, sneak in and have a look at the show jumping. I lived not far away from there when I was growing up. But at any rate, Niall Hatch, where exactly are you now? Because it does sound a bit noisy behind you. So, Derek, it's just winding up at the moment, would you believe? I'm round the back by the bins, just beside the road, just waiting to try to find a quiet room for you. So I'm hoping to head into the library so we can do more of the programme. So a little bit noisy behind me here at the moment, but lots of excitement. It's been really, really good for the last few days. Uh, lovely for Bird of Charm to be at the Horse Show. We have a stand here where we share information about birds and talk to the public and recruit new members. But it's also been really great to soak in the atmosphere and to reflect on, on Ireland winning the Agla Khan. You would have heard the roar from all the way over there in Ortea, I think, when they, when they won there on Friday. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, so really enjoying it. It's great to talk to people about wildlife and about nature. But we have pin badges here as well that we've been, we've been um, giving in return for donations. It's really interesting to me to see the difference between the different shows that Bird of Ireland does and the pin badges that are popular. So, for example, at most of our shows, like garden festivals and so on, uh, people want the blue tits, the robins, maybe the blackbirds, kingfishers are always popular, puffins. Here at the horse show, it's all foxes and pheasants and partridges. Uh, I think maybe it's a slightly different demographic. I think that maybe they're not so keen on watching those birds. I think it might be more about shooting them. <laughs> not anymore, I'm sure. Anyway, did you find new members? 
We did, yes, it's great. There's, there's been a real increase and a real switch, I think, in our shift in, in interest in nature and in wildlife. A lot of people telling us that, uh, that you know, they had a hard time during the, the pandemic, during the lockdowns, and that nature and birds in particular were in many ways a salvation for many people. Uh, they watched them in their gardens, they reconnected with nature, took part in bird and surveys, and a lot of people particularly telling me how much they love the dawn chorus, and indeed how much they love Mooney Goes Wild. The, the most asked question uh, on the stand this week is, is Derek with you? Anyway, says the same thing. I think you're just buttering me up. No, I'm not. With, well, I'm with you in spirit, let's say. Anyway, Niall, go and find a quieter space so we can continue the programme as soon as you can. There goes Niall Hatch. He's there at the RDS. So let's get on with business today. Don't forget, you can visit the website anytime you like. It's rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, let's move on because I want to talk about feeding wild animals. Now I have a bit of a bugbear. If you listen to the programme, you'll know I'm always saying we should only feed wild birds when they need it in the wintertime. Other people differ, say you can leave out food all the time. We'll discuss that a little bit later on with Niall when he finds a quieter space to broadcast from. But there's been some research done about feeding wild animals and in particular the fallow deer in the Phoenix Park. Feeding wild animals in general poses a serious risk to the well-being of humans and wildlife. Have you ever considered that? These are the findings of a new study by University College Dublin. It looked at the fallow deer population in Dublin's Phoenix Park and found that fawns from mothers who begged for food were significantly heavier, giving them a better chance to survive than those whose mothers rarely approached humans. It also found that this begging trait is associated with bolder, types of personality, which could cause more animals to become more harassing to get food in the first place. The study's main author is Laura Griffin. She's based in Kildare from where she joins us now. Hello, Laura. How are you today? I believe you're in the middle of your thesis. (laughs) I am indeed. You know, got to get the head down and get that in soon. So working away. Well, tell us all about the study. Perfect, yeah. So our study is based out of Phoenix Park, but I guess it's important to start off by saying that what we found here is transferable to all other species and areas that are being fed by people in this recreational way. Um, That being people trying to interact with wildlife themselves independently to get that connection with nature. So what we were interested in looking at was to see what kind of effects this was having. Because obviously from the human perspective, we often think that we're giving animals a treat by doing this or engaging with them in a positive way. But we wanted to see what the effects on the animals involved could be. And what have you found? So, so far we found in particular when we were looking at behaviour. So it's very important to realise from the offset that animals vary in their behaviour just like humans do. So from being neonates, that being newborns, you can see that some animals will naturally be more bold and some will be more shy and the other others fall like on the spectrum in between. That continuum of behaviour is what we call it. And that balance is very important in natural wild populations. Um, You want to retain that. And what we've found is that this human feeding is actually driving a selection for bold individuals meaning that they'll become more prominent in the population, which could have problems for the balance in the future. Now, it's important to state also that feeding the deer in the Phoenix Park is actually prohibited. Yes, exactly. It has been prohibited. Now, it is something that I think, from what the rangers and everyone within the park has told me, has really exploded in the last number of years. 
if you went into the park even like a couple of decades ago, you wouldn't be able to get close to the deer. They'd be very wary. Um, however, there's a lot of footfall in the park now. The park gets about 10 million visitors per year. And with that, people enjoy viewing the deer. A lot mm -hmm. of visitors, for example, international ones, will come specifically to see them, which is brilliant. They're a gorgeous part of Dublin's heritage. It's incredible to have this wild population of fallow deer in a city centre. Yeah, well, otherwise so it's fantastic. just another large park, you know, when you think exactly. about it. I mean, if you take out the zoo and take out Oris Nuteron and perhaps the ambassador's residence, I remember as a child being brought up there to see the deer. And it's fantastic. It is, yeah. It's a wonderful way for people who are vi either visiting the city or located in the city to feel that connection with nature. But I think in the last couple of years, people have tried to take it that step further. Rather than simply going to view them and mm. see them behaving naturally, people want closer contact, you know, want to see how close they can get. Well, you see, they want selfies. Uh, I've seen them do it, Laura. So they go up with their carrots or whatever it happens to be and they can get close and then mammy or daddy takes the photograph, which is not a good idea. You're dead right. Yeah, you're dead right. Definitely social media globally is driving these kind of interactions mm. with loads of different species. You can see it happening with birds like seagulls, for example, are really commonly harassing people now on beach sides because people would have thrown them food from picnics and so now they associate people with food. You even see it in marine animals like dolphins and seals in harbours will begin to follow boats because people will throw food out to them. And I know in the States, for example, and in Canada, they've even had issues with people trying to feed bears or coyotes mm -hmm. from campsites. And obviously the danger in those situations is much more obvious from the human side of things. We have to think about how we're affecting the animals too. Yeah, because it is having an impact. It is changing the animal's behaviour. This is one of the great debates about feeding the whale sharks in Oslob in the Philippines and in other parts of the world where the fishermen are making more money, as I understand it, from bringing tourists out to jump into the water so they keep the sharks in that area rather than the sharks migrating following the food. You're exactly right, yeah. So it's very common now for these ecotourism activities, and I use that word very flexibly, for people to try and attract animals to certain areas so people can get close to them or see them directly. And there has been concerns about the effects. Like, as you've said, it might keep animals in a smaller area. Yep. They might not spread out their full range. But also from another behavioral perspective, we have to be concerned about the impacts on offspring. So if these mothers for example, with the whale sharks or with dolphins, are constantly using this as a food source, yep. their offspring might not learn natural foraging behaviours. And then if this food source was to be removed or change in any way, then these animals do? now don't have natural behaviours. Yeah, exactly, the same they've with, got and, no fallback. And, and probably, Laura, everybody has experienced this already in their gardens if they feed birds without realising it. So if you continually feed the birds all through the year when the birds actually could find their own source of food, that's probably not the best idea in the world. It's not a terrible idea, but it's not the best idea. I think Niall is here anyway from Birdwatch Ireland. Your advice is only feed the birds when they need it. Well, ideally, yes. I mean, the, the big difference, I suppose, when you're feeding the birds in your back garden, if you're doing it properly, the birds don't really know that you're doing it. They don't associate human beings with that food supply. And the food Foods that we would recommend uh, for, for birds, they, they are especially designed to be properly nutritious for them. So they're eating the right kind of food. So as far as the birds are concerned, they're foraging naturally and just happen to come across this supply of food. They're not associated with, hu 
with humans. A difference would be, for example, where, where the gulls in some urban areas are being fed deliberately by people and those gulls then make the link between humans. No, and I don't believe anybody is deliberately feeding the gulls in urban areas. I'm sorry. Oh, I they just, definitely are. Well, I don't think they're doing it at the moment. I mean, most of the gulls are coming in of their own volition because there's easy pickings on the boardwalk or on the streets. But that's another argument. But yeah. I, I have never seen anybody deliberately feed a gull. But oh. when it comes to feeding the birds in the garden, you may say the people know that the birds don't link people and the food source. But you take that food source away and then all of a sudden they don't have it anymore. My, my point is that feeding them all the time all year round is probably not a good idea. Honestly, <laughs> the research that we've done into it, it, it doesn't it doesn't have a big impact on them in the summer. You'll find that they eat a lot less. But the thing is, of course, that if you're feeding the right kinds of food to, to the birds, like peanuts and sunflower seeds and so on, that's very much akin to what they'd be eating in nature anyway. So it doesn't cause any particular problems but you will find yes obviously in the autumn and particularly in the winter when it's cold it's uh, it's much harder for them but I know what's happening in the Phoenix Park with the deer is they're being fed a whole lot of completely inappropriate Well things. just before we go back yeah. to the Phoenix Park and I'm sorry for digressing yeah. a little but do you recommend that people feed the birds all year round? What we would recommend is obviously the most important time is in the winter if people feed during the summer months that is okay we don't have a problem with oh, that okay. so long as though what we would say is it's important that the, that the feeding areas or the feeding stations are kept well away from anywhere where birds would be nesting and if you have a small garden you'd find actually maybe you shouldn't feed them because it can provoke all these territorial responses yes, in the birds. which is why I don't feed them. Yeah, and, 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 in, and, and it's also, it is worth pointing, as you said, in most cases they, they don't need it. So when they people are feeding birds the, in the summer, it, they're doing it more for themselves than for the birds. Having said that, it's not a particularly big problem. Anyway, Laura, sorry I digress there a little. Uh, Richard Collins wants to get in on this. Richard. Oh, this brings up all kinds of things. A proud boast, first of all, Derek. I think I have fed more birds than anybody else in Ireland, but they have all been mute swans. Feeding mute swans is very interesting. Look at it from the point of view of the bird. The bird has a problem. He's addicted to the bread or whatever it is you're throwing. Would it just love to eat it? But he has another side to him which says, don't do this because it's dangerous. Don't go near this awful animal or person. So this tension exists. And as you watch the swans, you see the aggressive behavior rising as they close in on the bread. They're torn between the two forces. I'm doing it in order to put a swan hook. I have a swan hook lying there, which I rush out around their necks and pull them in to to put rings on their legs. So that's why I'm doing this. It's not just an idle uh, activity. But it's very interesting to see that the tension is there between aggression and satisfying the craving for hunger. I suspect that something similar might happen to fallow deer. Though I don't know in the Phoenix Park if they're looking for food and you're not forthcoming, they may go after you or something like that. I think the keepers are worried because a few years ago there was a case taken against them. A swan was alleged to have attacked a lady in the Phoenix Park. They won the case. I was a witness on their behalf as it happens. But anyway, I think a similar, they're fearful of a similar thing happening with fallow deers. There is a risk, but nothing like as great a risk as driving to the Phoenix Park in order to feed the fallow deer in the first place. Laura, is, is that a, a significant problem, do you think, in the park? Is, is, it, is it likely that as these deer become bolder and more, uh, more used to humans, that they lose that natural fear, that there could be injuries and people might be hurt? Yes, it's certainly a very real risk. So what you see with wild animals is they're very different to domesticated animals in that 
While we've bred domestication into certain species, such as agricultural species, these wild animals, as was mentioned, they're driven not to go near humans. Naturally, that's the force that's pushing them because we're viewed as a predatory species. But if you are constantly exposed to humans coming very close to you, it wastes energy to consistently run away. So they'll tolerate humans being a bit closer um, just because they're preserving energy by not running away because they reach a point where they're like, okay, maybe I'm not going to be harmed. However, people can misconstrue that willingness to let people get within a certain distance with a desire for humans to be close to them. So we're starting to push that relationship where we're getting closer and closer. Now, as was said, the food that people are giving to the fallow deer in the park is often not appropriate for their diet. Um, fallow deer are a grazer species, which means that about 90% of their diet should be made up entirely of grass. Um, the other 10% depends on roughage that they scavenge themselves, depending on different times of year, so that can browse like leaves. Whereas people are going in and feeding carrots, apples, there's that association with Christmas and Rudolph and uh, biscuits and other snacks that they might have easily on them. Bread is actually a very common one that I've seen myself. And these are not appropriate for the deer. As well as that, as was said, animals can get very competitive over resources. So if this food is consistently being offered to them, they can start to associate people with food. If they're bolder over time, they can start to begin to be very pushy and harass people for that food. And they can even potentially turn on each other as they compete over a food resource and start to show a certain level of aggression to each other. So we have to be very concerned about where we're driving this behavior towards. There's other parks globally, so for example, there's a deer park in Japan, Nara Park, and they have a Sika deer population there that are very commonly fed by visitors. And even with them, they do offer visitors coming in um, these things that they call deer biscuits, which are more easily digestible because they're trying to prevent nutrition deficits in the population. But even with that, that population now associates people with food and they end up getting hundreds of injuries reported every year from the deer pucking people, biting them. And I think in 2019, they even had um, multiple people report broken bones from the deer pucking them and pushing them. So it is a concern that in the future, that's the point of no return. And this might not be sustainable if we keep driving the population that way. So we want to avoid that at all costs. I think that obviously a large and big part of what's driving this is people think they're doing a nice thing. They think they're helping the deer. They think, as you said, that they're giving them a treat. I think you've also hit the nail on the head when you mentioned social media. I think Instagram and Snapchat and so on have driven a lot of this. People do want to get these selfies. They do want to post this content and it's become kind of normal. But I think at the bottom line is that people really think they are helping these animals. They're doing a nice thing for wildlife. How could that be redirected, do you think, so that people could could fulfil that need to help wildlife without actually, without actually harming them or causing them potential risk? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, yeah, I think that a lot of people who go to the park, you'll often see that it's families or it's like people who are bringing their kids. And I think one of the most wonderful things about, you know, upcoming generations and modern times is that we've realized we need this connection with nature and we're trying to develop a much more positive relationship with it. Mm -hmm. You can see that with the development of things like green schools. A lot more people are interested in non-littering campaigns or recycling. And it's a wonderful thing to see and along with that people want their kids or even themselves to have this positive relationship with nature so they think that when they go to the park and um, that well this is what people have said to me when I've asked them in the park about their motivations for feeding they've said 
I just want um, myself or my kids to have a good relationship with animals, love them and respect them. So they think they're having a positive relationship. I think that it's important for people to realize that just because we're enjoying something doesn't mean that in the long term it's sustainable or it's going to be positive. So instead we should redirect that towards appreciating nature from a distance. Not to sound cliche, but you know, sometimes a long distance relationship is the best relationship. Um, I think that if we can redirect things towards for example i think bird watching can be a very positive activity and deer watching can be very positive it's wonderful i've had incredible days out in the park where i've kept that distance of 50 meters particularly it's wonderful if you're out there during early summer because you can see the fawns come mm. out and join the herd for the first time and if you keep that safe distance and allow them to behave naturally you get to see them playing you get to see them suckling you can see a lot more really engaging natural behaviors um, and i think that if we can start to see that that's a much more positive way to yeah. either educate our children or ourselves about feeling in touch with nature it can be mutually beneficial for both species that being humans and the wildlife involved how do you feel about ecotourism? Well, I think that ecotourism is something of a double-edged sword. Certainly there are certain activities where it's potentially not as positive for the wildlife involved or things aren't being checked. But I know that, for example, in South Africa, when people go on safari and things to small private game reserves, by going out to that safari and seeing these animals, they are providing money, which then goes towards anti-poaching. So potentially in the future, some of these areas might be the last reserves that these species can exist in. Yep. But we have to make sure we don't cross that line. We have yes. to identify that line of what's positive and make sure that we keep that on the good side of that, on the safe side of that for the species involved. Because at the end of the day, we want to keep them around. We want to have future generations be able to appreciate them and enjoy them and for example if to go back to phoenix park if it goes to the stage where we continuously are selecting for the survival of these bold individuals and if the population as a result becomes increasingly more bold and is harassing people then we have to be concerned that people won't want to visit or there'll be concerns about it or as was mentioned there might even be calls to remove some of the population or law cases so we have to make sure that we don't allow things to go that far because you know if you love wildlife enough to go out and try and feed them and interact with them you should love them enough to want to preserve their future yes. in what is their natural habitat and their home yeah we've got to draw the line as it says on the bus in Algarve here on Lean Bon Richard Laura, you have done research on this. Uh, the picture you paint is that these deer are dividing. There's those that have been seduced by artificial food and there are those who have remained true to their old way of doing things and feed 90% of the time on grass. If you are right and they are being fed the wrong things a lot of the time, we would expect that over time the ones that go for artificial food would do less well than the ones that stay in the old native procedure of eating grass. What have you found on that front? Yeah, so we've looked into a variety of different things. So it's important to, to realize that that is being driven by natural behaviors. So certain individuals are naturally bolder. So they're trying to extract what they can from these interactions. They're willing to risk that contact. And as a result, their diet is very different from the others. So we did some comparisons there. So one thing that we looked at was the rumen. 
which is the chamber of the stomach that digests the grass in these animals. They're like cattle, they have four chambered stomachs. And we found that those deer who are consistently interacting with people, they have considerably more papillae on the inside of their stomach than others. Now what that means is that they have more finger-like projections on the inside of their stomach lining, which helps with absorbing high sugar foods or high concentrate foods. And that can indicate that they're dealing with more acid than the rest of the animals who are on a more natural diet. Concerns are that if the diet changes suddenly, what we're seeing is an indicator that they're trying to adapt to a change in food. And if things change suddenly, say, for example, the amount of inappropriate foods that they're being fed, say, for example, at Christmas spikes, they might not be able to adapt fast enough. And that could potentially lead to something like acidosis or bloat. So we have to be concerned there. In terms of looking at offspring, we've actually found that the converse is happening, which is that those females are currently extracting nutrition from the food and increasing the weight of their fawns, and those fawns are more likely to survive. But that means that we're driving selection of bold behaviors and harassment behaviors. So down the line, you're going to have a negative impact where the animals are more competitive, they're more likely to harass people, and you could even potentially reach a point of no return where if this trend continues and fawns continue to gain weight, you'll have issues with natural births because there's a healthy medium that deer's bodies try to naturally uh, achieve. And if you go above that, you could have, for example, breaches or issues with natural births in the park, which could potentially be problematic for both the mother and the fawn then. So it's all about right now we've noticed some red flags that if we keep going the way that we're going, there could be pretty catastrophic and unsustainable impacts on the population. Niall, you want to say something about chocolate or am I mistaken? Yes, indeed. Laura, I was just really curious. I've seen the list of some of the, the items that people have been feeding to the deer. And as you mentioned, some of them, even though they're wrong and shouldn't shouldn't do it, I can understand why people might think carrots and apples and so on might be a more natural type of food, even though it is inappropriate. But I understand that people have been feeding chocolate to the deer and ham sandwiches like, to a vegetarian, you know, uh, Coca-Cola, even Red Bull. Is that true? And how do, the, how do the, the, the deer react to that? Surely their bodies don't necessarily process these chemicals in the same way that ours do. How can they digest meat? Eat, how do they cope with caffeine, things like that? Yeah, like the, that is correct. The animals are naturally herbivores. And as I said, they should be fed primarily on grass. So the fact that they're being fed these human food items that are extremely inappropriate in other populations, feeding of these kind of foods, for example, in fish populations can lead to unhealthy fat deposits. In birds, there's been um, cases of malnutrition. There can be issues with breeding and changes in the breeding season and the amount of offspring that are produced as a result. I think these kinds of things are often fed because it's all knock-on effects. So when people go into the park with their carrots that they think are okay for the deer, um, which they shouldn't be getting fed anyway, but they're going in well-intentioned, you have to realize that it's not just you and it's not just one carrot. When you provide any sort of food to the deer, it's all the people around you who are seeing it and going, oh my God, that would be brilliant. And they take what they have in their bag out. And when you're off for a day in the park, often that's kind of picnic snacks. So it could be chocolate bars, it could be a packet of crisps. Um, it could be, you know, your Red Bull that I have seen being given to the deer that you brought with yourself for a little caffeine boost. So they try, they want that interaction and they don't think in that moment. They just see what is available to them to try and engage with the animals. 
So it all ripples outward. It's one of those things that if you do anything, it has a knock-on effect, kind of monkey see, monkey do, that other people then want to get involved. And that is a huge issue for the deer then. We have to be very concerned about malnutrition if that kind of thing continues. Well, just to reiterate that it is prohibited in the Phoenix Park to feed the fallow deer there. And you are also putting out the message to our listeners today or any tourists that happen to be in Ireland who are going to visit the Phoenix Park, do not feed the deer. Exactly. Do not feed the deer. And if it's a case of, you know, you're chatting to someone and they're not aware of it, like there's a lot of people who are really passionate about the deer in the park and I applaud those people. Like they are, as I said before, a wonderful part of Dublin's heritage. And I think it is a thing of the rangers go out and they do try to stop people, but they can't be everywhere at once. And it's very important that this message spreads outwards to all the people in Dublin and throughout and all the international visitors who come that if you love the deer, don't do this. Don't feed them. Instead, try and engage in a positive way by letting them behave naturally in their own home. And keep your distance. Wild animals are just that. And we want to keep them as a wild herd. Exactly. Yeah. They are a wild animal at the end of the day. We're very lucky to have them and they let are. the wildlife stay wild. OK, lovely to speak with you, Laura. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. This is lovely. Thank you. It was you. fantastic. Lovely to listen to you. Thanks, Laura. Bye. Right, there goes care, Laura. Bye. Now, John Bella Riley, our researcher, has popped into studio because he has a comment to make about people feeding gulls because I said, I don't believe, I said Nile Hatch, that people are deliberately feeding gulls in urban areas or anywhere for that matter. John Bell O'Reilly, what have you got to say about this? Yeah, uh, so a couple of weeks ago, I was hanging around my house, um, not too far away from the city centre in Dublin, when there was a gentleman in the back lane to the back of um, our terrace and he was feeding the gulls there batch of white bread and I can remember thinking God it was a little bit of an eyebrow raising moment but of course you have to think carefully through how to whether or not to approach somebody like that and if so how you're going to do it in such a way that maybe the outcome isn't very upsetting for for both of you so um, I I had a bit of a think about it and I thought well look I'll return to the subject if I see him again and I'll take the time in between time to to think how to approach the matter Um, what would your advice on that be? Uh, It's something that I've seen myself quite a bit and I think as we heard with the deer there I think often the motivation is very good people think they're doing a nice thing and they're helping these animals. Now, something like white bread for a gull, it's not a brilliant source of food for them. They're able to eat a wider diet than most creatures are, but it's still not great. It's not a very natural type of food. It's highly processed. It's high in salt, all these things that, that, that they wouldn't necessarily get, get normally. It doesn't have much by way of protein and so on. So that's a problem for them. But more importantly, that bird is learning to associate humans with food. So the next time it sees a human with their picnic lunch or whatever, it thinks, ah, that's one of those creatures that's supposed to feed me. Uh, and it comes in and they can be quite aggressive with it. And many times I've seen people, you know, at, at various seaside areas around Ireland flinging out the odd chips or the crusts of their sandwich to, to, the, to the birds. You see it quite a lot on the boardwalk in Dublin city centre too. Again, those people, they want a close encounter with nature. They want to help wildlife. But then what happens is some of those gulls then become aggressive and then there are calls to cull them and then people take law, the law into their own hands and try to, 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 to take care of the problem themselves. And ultimately it ends up hurting those birds, not helping them at all. So I do think that people need to be mindful of that and to realise that sometimes the kind thing of all to do is just to let nature be and let it find its own food and, and take its own course. So John, are you actually going to confront your neighbour next time you see him feeding the birds? 
Good question, Derek. I mean, I think in the interest of kind of good community relations, I think we have to sort of like thread um, quite lightly because people kind of may get the wrong idea as to where you're coming from. But I think, as Niall suggested, probably there is merit in addressing the issue and um, just maybe just um, choosing your words and, of course, your tone very, very carefully. It's all about tone, right, Derek? Mm. Anyway, I want to move on because I recorded this the other morning at 4am, everybody. Have a listen here in the studio and in your respective homes to this wonderful early morning sound of nature. Yeah, it's a barking sound, all right. Do you know what it is? It is... A fox, and I can confirm it's a fox because that was the sound I heard just after 4am the other morning outside my door. So I stuck my mobile phone out the bedroom window and I recorded it. I couldn't see it at first, but I knew it was a fox barking all right. And then I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll check my security camera. And sure enough, there was the fox walking outside the front gate. So I have a picture. It's not a great picture. It's a screen grab from the security camera and you can see the fox just passing in front of my gate but it was barking and I'm saying to myself why is this fox barking at this time of the year is it a bit late I thought they only barked in the mating season and the other question I have and when you look at the picture on the website rte.ie forward slash moody is why are the eyes of the fox glowing anybody want to jump in there Richard Collins Nilana, Richard Derek yes um, foxes well you the famous shriek you always hear in films often at the wrong time of year and the back the soundtrack put in is the vixen's scream which sounds a bit like that but there is another sound that foxes do and that is a kind of warning bark for their cubs when the cubs are venturing forth and they may be in danger. That's possibly what we're seeing here. Ah, I see. So it's just a warning, a communication, ain't it? Well, what's happening here, Derek, is the cubs are born in March and it takes them seven months until they actually dis- disappear at the end of October. So they're looked after by their parents. So this is a daddy fox or a mammy fox out looking for food for the cubs because it's only August at the minute and barking then because obviously he's, you know, doesn't want to be attacked by dogs or anything. He's proclaiming his territory. He's looking after his cubs. So it's, or even it's a female, but it's not anything to do with the mating call. They're not mating in August no. at all. This is a feeding fox looking for looking for food, and of course his eyes are gleaming, and that's Schalella Erfab. Do you want me to pontificate on the gleaming eyes? Oh Derek? yes, I was surprised at how glowing they were. Well, apparently this is because they have a layer at the back of their eyes called no less than tapetum lucidum. And this layer of tapetum lucidum is a light-reflecting system at the back of their retinas. So even the small amount of light at four in the morning, which would be quite a lot in the city, is reflected into their eyes and reflected back out again through their retina, giving this glowing effect. And if there's any artificial light coming from your camera or your house or what have you, that amplifies that. And it allows the fox to see very well, you know, in the dark, because Mm. we wouldn't see in the dark so very well as he can and it's because they have this tapetum lucidum, no less. 
Sounds like a plant anyway, Niall. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, part of the, the biology of an eye, of the, the function that we humans don't have. In fact, although many, many mammals have it, the higher primates, including ourselves and the great apes, don't have it. And it's an adaptation that many creatures have when they have a mainly nocturnal lifestyle. So some other daytime mammals, like squirrels, for example, lack it. Uh, but many nocturnal animals, like, like cats and wolves and, and uh, dogs, um, foxes, all of these do. It's to give them a better eyesight in low levels of light. So what happens saying, is... They're saying, yeah. Yeah, so this, 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 uh, this layer reflects some of the light back. So some of the photons that have missed the retina, they go through and then they get reflected back into the eye. So it allows them to see better in low light levels. However, it also means that their vision is slightly less sharp than it would otherwise be. So we humans, we don't have very good nighttime vision, but we do have sharper eyesight as a result. So the, eye, the eyesight of a, of a fox or a cat isn't actually that good. Uh, they can see movement very well, but they're not so good at discerning all the different uh, so, for example, it's thought that cats may not be able to distinguish between different human faces. They know us from the sounds and from the smells that we have and the way we may move, but they don't necessarily recognise our faces as being different from each other, which is, which is quite Whereas dogs do. Well, well, perhaps we're not fully sure of that either. We're not quite sure of how dogs get that information. We know dogs can follow human uh, eye they movement. They do, they do. I mean, if you've been away for a while and you come back, if you look at any video online, you see the dogs, they know who the person is immediately. Yes, oh, they do. and they do. It's not they, some stranger walking towards them. And vision may be a big component of that, but it also is to do with sound and with smell as well, very much so. Oh, okay, but yeah. what's interesting as well is too, with your security camera there, you saw, I've seen the picture and the glow is very intense. When that's happening, Derek, can I ask you, is there a light actually on that you can see or is it in the No, dark? but just outside the gate, there is a street lamp. Okay, so, so that, that that's one of the reasons that the light would be reflecting in. I know that a lot of security cameras and also night vision cameras and detectors, they use infrared light. That's what I have on the camera, yeah. So the human eye can't can't see that and that often is, is even more reflective on, on from the eye and in fact the human eye will also reflect that quite strongly too. So sometimes with, with these security cameras or with night vision equipment particularly that are very sensitive to low light levels, human eyes will mm. reflect the infrared light as well but it's invisible to us. But the barking, Richard, at that hour of the morning, is it not giving itself away? Well, it's a nocturnal animal, remember, uh, and it's warning its cubs. The cubs are far more um, vulnerable to a predator, so they have to be mindful of the coming generation. It's an interesting thing, this thing about the, the, the light. Tapetum is the word, the same Latin root that we get tapestry, our kind of covering. And the other one... Lucifer is, is the name that comes to mind. Lucifer mm, means flooded with light. So tapetum lucidum is flooded with light. What is interesting, it seems to me, is all kinds of nocturnal creatures have it. Some invertebrates have it, reptiles, uh, amphibians, right across the board. If you're working at night, you need all the light you can gather, and they use this method a lot of the time to get it. What is interesting, I, you bring back memories, you really do with this question. Because I remember in the old Ford Prefect long ago, driving at night with my father, we would see the shining light of an animal. Now, we were always quite intrigued as to what the animal was. It was most often a cat, of course, because cats tend to be, roam around very much at night. But the colours of various animals' reflections are different. For instance, foxes and otters are red. I never saw an, a lot of what I thought was an otter in the lights, but apparently they're red in their reflection. Green for the cat, and you often see green ones. And badgers too were green, apparently. Uh, and I'm told that pine martens, which were extremely thin on the ground in the days of the Ford Prefect in Ireland, blue. Blue was their one. And deer, and deer are 
wise, it seems. Mm. So some people profess to be able to identify mammals and other creatures at night by this reflection from their well, eyes. Well, I can tell you, Richard, funny you should say that because I was in Florida many years ago in a place called Gainesville. And if anybody knows the drink Gatorade, isn't that what it's called? Nile, it's a bit like LucasAid. You know that drink? Yeah, it's one of those isotonic. Yeah, yeah. that's where it comes from. And they have a famous college football team there called the Gators and their home ground is called the Swamp. Anyway, I was there with some students doing research. I wasn't doing the research. I was observing them on alligators and they would go on to the lakes at night time, pitch black. You couldn't see a thing. And they would power up these huge spotlights. And all you would see on the surface of the water were these red eyes glaring right back at you. They were the alligators. (laughs) Well, there's a queer one for you now altogether. <laughs> Actually, when foxes are born first, they have blue eyes. They don't get their amber eyes until they develop a bit more because somebody sent me in a skull, my brother actually sent me in a skull of something he thought had been dropped at the bottom of the buzzard's nest on his land. And the thing had blue eyes when we looked at it. He was wondering, was it a hedgehog? And we consulted with Tom Hayden, who has written Mammals in Ireland. And Tom confirmed that it was actually a very young fox whose eyes had not changed to being amber yet. So I presume it couldn't see in the dark at all. And hence it was nabbed by the buzzard, although buzzards hunt during the day. Anyway, that was the story with the fox. But the eyes do go from blue to an amber colour. And presumably the tapetum lucidum develops as the eyes become more more grown up. Anyway, Annie, you want to talk to me about Sharkin Island? Oh, Sharkin Island is a great place altogether off the west of Cork. And in 1979, I had a teacher's course down there for a whole week. Now, for 40 years, I have been doing teacher's courses the first week in July. And there has been some rain every single time. And 1979 which was one of my earlier courses. It did not rain once for that whole week. And my teachers came, mostly women, and they lay out in their bathing togs and they didn't learn anything and we were free of inspectors and nobody came. I had terrible trouble trying to teach them anything. We had a great time on Shirkin. Matt Murphy was there with his station and I have great fond memories of Shirkin Island. But you spoke to a lady recently about Leave No Visible Trace, an exhibition which has taken place on Shirkin Island between the 3rd and 8th of September from 11 to 5pm daily. Tell me about this. I did, Derek. I spoke to Nuala Mahan and it's all to do with the appalling amount of plastic waste that is in our oceans. Aina, during the pandemic, I used to walk down to one of our beautiful beaches every day and I became aware of all the plastic items that were being washed in on our beaches. Now, we have a guy here who cleans the beaches every morning and by the time visitors arrive here or indeed locals, we see nothing because the beaches are pristine. But if you get down there early enough, you can see, particularly after a storm, what is carried in on the tide and it is alarming, to put it mildly. Most of it being from uh, cast off nets and all sorts of marine industrial waste, I suppose you'd call it. And after that, then it's plastic toys, kiddies toys. Maybe they've left them on the beach, but I suspect quite a lot of them come from recycling centres around the world. And also um, containers of all sorts, plastic containers. In fact, I've quite frequently found containers with Japanese or Chinese uh, writing on them. 
So what you're speaking of, you're speaking of the beaches on Sherkin Island, which wouldn't have thousands and thousands of visitors on a warm summer's day. So you're speaking of stuff that comes in on the tide as opposed to being left by careless visitors to the beach. This is why you're getting these things with Japanese written on them or other languages. They're not brought by people and left on the beach in Sherkin. They're actually coming in on the currents and on the tide from very far away places by the sound of things. That's absolutely correct. And I have to compliment most of the visitors who come to Shirkin Island are acutely aware of the environment and they do take the rubbish back home with them. But this is plastic waste that ends up in the ocean, which is out of our control. Now, it's kind of two categories the way you have described it. There's the stuff that comes off the things that are on the ocean, mostly boats and trawlers, things to do with fishing. And I presume the fishermen are not throwing these things overboard, that they get snagged on lines, that it's sort of what we might call fallout from the actual fishing industry itself. Not that that is in any way excuses it, but it does mean that it's it's fallout from fishing and the more fishing that's done with long lines and nets, the more of the things will get snagged up and eventually wash up on the beach. And of course, not only are they terrible um, from a point of view of visual rubbish, but they can be huge environmental traps as well for fish and other creatures to get caught in these nets as they are carried through the ocean waves and through the currents. So that's a particularly bad category and you have some of that in your exhibition, have you not? I do indeed, Aina, and you're absolutely right. Um, I'm quite sure that fishermen don't do this uh, purposely, but the nets are huge that they're using, um, modern nets, and they are made of plastic and they do get snagged on things and they do get, I presume, cut free. And I mean, some of these nets are huge, absolutely huge that wash in on the beaches. But in addition, we also have ropes. We have all sorts of small pieces of ropes and what looks like twine, but it looks like a, a fisherman's thing. And you're right again in saying that sea creatures get caught up in these and in fact suffocate or in fact can't feed because they're around their necks or something like that. It is absolutely incredible how dangerous these things are. And in addition, we have a lot, particularly here in Shirkin, of lobster pot lids and things like that, because when they're put at the bottom of the sea, when they're dropped in the sea, the lid is just tied loosely on and it comes free. I mean, I can't tell you how many of these I, I have collected over time. And then the second category then, maybe is even more worrying because you're suggesting that people in good faith have actually recycled these things, have have decided I'm not going to throw my children's toy out the door, my plastic children's toy, I will put it in the recycling bin and dispose of it as I am instructed. And yet these are ending up in the oceans as well. So what happens to the stuff you put in the green bin? Does it not go off and be absolutely recycled after all means repurposed, melted down, used as a raw material for manufacturing something else. I mean, now we've all been hoodwinked into putting stuff in our green bin and they end up in, in landfill. I mean, how does the stuff get from the green bin that we recycled in good faith 
to, to the shores of, of Shirkin via Japan and God knows what else. I mean, did you find out anything there on the journey of what happens to what we in good faith recycle? Well, the journey is complicated, Aina, to put it mildly. It was even more complicated by pan- by the pandemic because, of course, we were all confined to base. So I wasn't particularly able to go and investigate recycling centres. And I would say that recycling centres do what they do excellently and they do the best job they possibly can. But... Quite a lot of the plastic items that we have are not recyclable for a start. And those that are, are recycled if there is a recycling capacity available. Now, in many, many countries, there are no recycling, uh, secondary recycling. In other words, to recreate new plastic items from recycled items. And also, it's necessary to say, and I'm not absolutely sure how many times you can recycle plastic, but I think it's about three times. So then you still have a plastic item to recycle. And then what happens to it? So sometimes, and in some places, the plastic was, well, it used to be removed to Asian countries Many of these countries do not have any facilities for recycling them. So they got dumped on beaches, on coastlines and, of course, got washed back in the sea. China, since 2019, have stopped accepting rubbish from around the world. And that was a huge wake up call for Western countries because they then had to decide what to do with the plastic waste. Some of it is burned for low-grade fuel. But again, this pollutes the the atmosphere because it's low-grade fuel. So uh, my way of thinking, Aina, is there's only one solution to this, and that is use less plastic. But I have to say that we are indebted to plastic as a material for so many good things like medical devices. So... What I'm saying is the single-use plastic, kiddies' toys, things that are not necessary to be created from plastic should be eliminated. And that's up to us. So your exhibition then that you have for coming up in the week in September is drawing attention to all of this for, for visitors coming to it. So can you describe what your exhibition might look like? What will we be looking at if we arrive to see what you're putting out there? That's a good question, and you'd be looking at a lot of plastic, either in reality or in images. The exhibition will be held in two parts, and the first part is a mixed media part in the community hall here on Shirkin. And in there, I have a video of the journey I took to creating this material. And the first steps of my journey, I went down to the beach, and like a lot of other fine art photographers, I created what I considered to be beautiful images of this plastic. And I woke up one day saying, why am I creating beautiful images of something that's damaging the planet? So I thought hard about how I could create work that was sustainable. 
Now, this is quite a difficult process. I made my own cameras from tin cans and from cardboard boxes. And I took these down to the beach throughout the whole winter of 2020 and 2021. And I created the images um, and it's a hit and mid process. So in the exhibition, you'll see the negatives that I created. And eventually you will proceed on down to the beach and you will see the actual images that I created. And these are all printed on linen and they will be flowing in the breeze on the on the beach. And it may rain and they may be carried out to sea. But the whole purpose of this exhibition is that these things will disintegrate, even if they end up in the ocean. So we can do it. It can be more difficult. But in fact, I think the end results are ethereal and, and really very beautiful. Nuala Mann speaking to Aina Nilana from Sharkin Island and that exhibition Leave No Visible Trace runs from the 3rd to the 8th of September, 11am to 5pm daily and it's taking place in the community hall on Sharkin Island if you just happen to be on Sharkin Island or if you're visiting or whatever the case may be. Niall, you want to say something about plastic waste? Yes, I'm all in favour of anything that's drawing attention to the problem of plastic waste in our oceans because it's becoming a colossal problem, a really serious one for mm-hmm. Wildlife and for humans. Um, I remember we did a really interesting documentary a while back on the, the Bergen, Bergen whale. whale. That's yeah. the one, yeah, absolutely. This whale in Norway um, that was found in a, in a very distressed state, it ended up having to be put down, the poor thing. And it turned out it had dozens of plastic 40 bags. 40 plastic bags they counted in its gut. And this is becoming power for the course in our oceans now. So many species of wildlife are consuming these turtles, uh, fish, seabirds as well. We're actually finding now the majority of seabirds found dead on Irish beaches have some degree of plastic inside their systems. It doesn't necessarily mean the plastic killed them. It may have in some cases, but they're all contaminated with plastic. So this is really, really worrying. One of the statistics that's always stuck with me when we did uh, the, the programme with the Bergen Whale was just the amount of, of plastic bottles that end up in our oceans. In terms of the production of plastic bottles for, for water, just for water bottles, around the world, every second... 20,000 plastic bottles are being produced. Wow. So every minute, that's 1.2 million. So every year, that's around half a trillion. And of those, it's only about 7% or so are ever recycled. The rest go into landfill or end up being dumped into rivers and being washed out to the sea or go straight into our oceans. It's a huge, huge problem. And they're predicting that if the current trend continues, by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the oceans by weight than fish, which is shocking. Really shocking. But as Nula is kind of saying there, to paraphrase her, plastic, can't live with it, you can't live without it. Well, indeed, we've become so accustomed to it and so hooked on it, really, that it's become a symbol of modern life. We really are have to find a way to reduce our reliance and dependence on it and to realise that the choices that we make have repercussions for generations to come. Well, good luck to Nuala. It's a great idea. Leave no visible trace. All the details of that particular exhibition and everything covered in today's programme on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to Niall Hatch, Aina Nilauna, Richard Collins, our broadcast coordinator, Jarlath Holland, and our researcher, John Bella Riley. We'll do it all again at the same time next week. Until then, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Hey!